Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Happy summertime, podcast listeners. We have an awesome show for you today. We might even get a little bit meta. Talking all things podcasting, our guest is the co-founder, CEO of Radio Public. You've heard me mention that app numerous times on the podcast before. Co-founder of PodFund, PRX, Matter VC. Welcome to the show, Jake Shapiro. Thanks so much, Beb. Psyched to be on with you. I'm excited to go down the rabbit hole of all things podcasting. There was a a really awesome deck that we sent around this week from A16Z that was like 70 pages of podcasting goodness. But I want to rewind and start with a little bit of your origin story. My producer said you started out as a South Korean rock star. Is that true? Kind of, yeah. That was sort of my beginning in all things digital was as a musician. So played in a long series of Boston rock bands throughout my career, I think starting with sixth grade when we played Beat It with the cameo guitar solo by Eddie Van Halen. So I was trying to learn how to play that back in the early days. But the band that I started in around 1996 was called Two Ton Shoe, T-W-O-T-O-N-S-H-O-E, like a big heavy shoe. It was kind of like a funk soul rock band. And we had a fan and a friend who worked at the MIT Media Lab. And this is 1996. And so he and I set up our first website and server. And we started distributing our own direct MP3s and building like email lists and fan clubs and starting our own digital record label. This was like super early. And not only that, but like as they were developing standards for like MPEG layer three and layer four, they ended up using one of the two ton shoe songs like in the white paper for the standard. I, of course, not only was a guitarist and like a partner in the band, but I ended up by default becoming like the manager and label guy. So we were an early guinea pig in a lot of the digital music startups of the era. So one of the stories I like telling is that when mp3.com got started in like 98, 99, we were one of the first bands to really like get on it. And it was, you know, meant to be this new discovery platform for unsigned artists and different kinds of bands. And we shot up to the top and like won their best band of the internet contest at some point. But when they did their IPO, which was like the height of dot-com heyday in like the summer of 99, like July of 99, the founder, Michael Robertson, who I've since occasionally thanked for this, did this like unusual thing. And he said, any rock band who had an account on mp3.com prior to the IPO, if they like opened up a Charles Schwab account in like 48 hours, they could buy in at the banker at the private offering price, the insider price. And this was a moment when all these things were going through the roof. So I got I got the band, like friends and family, that cobbled together a couple thousand dollars. And we bought all the shares, you know, opened up the Charles Schwab account and bought all the shares we could at 26 bucks, the offering price. And they warned us that like, you couldn't flip it or you'd like never have a Charles Schwab account again or something. And of course, we flipped it like as soon as we could because it went to like 150 like the next day. I think we managed to sell it at 90 and that paid for the band van. It paid for like a new guitar. We like recorded our next album, but it's like, it was, an, it was a hugely important moment in the meta version because it was one of the few places where the entrepreneur brought in the artists 
in the value creation of the platform, which was like based on the artists. And I wish more of that happened, but it was a very instructive moment for me, both in the sort of like early internet music days and also what it means to build some of these businesses that are helping artists as entrepreneurs. Man, you, you brought back a lot of fond memories during that description. First of all, I think a lot of people don't know that that, that was a Eddie Van Halen solo in the Michael Jackson song. That's a great trivia trivia piece. And second, um, I, usually, I usually try to turn it into a trivia question. I was like, we picked that one song because of the cameo who did it. And so that, that's, it's an amazing solo. I still can't play it today. Never mind when I was in sixth grade. That bubble, I was in college during that bubble, and it brings back a lot of fond memories of, I mean, we had professors that were checking stock prices during class, and it's hard to really convey that to other generations of younger investors. Maybe you can talk a little about a crypto to them, but of what a real mania felt like. And it was a lot of fun, but also it reminds me, as you're talking about MP3, because I was a early adopter in the opposite direction. I went mini disc. Mini disc for the young listeners was basically like a small CD in a case that were amazing because they didn't scratch, they didn't skip, but they were not adopted. <laughs> I've got boxes of them still sitting here. I mean, we recorded a lot of band practices on mini disc. I've got like a ton of that stuff. And it turned out that to get to the South Korea bit, that one of those songs a decade later became a viral hit in South Korea, a song called Medicine by Two-Tone Shoe, and we got a call out of the blue. This was like way past the heyday of the band, probably like 2007, 2008, and I was already off into my whole like podcast and radio career. And his label called us and said, you have a song that's blown up over here, but you know there are no like, sales because this is all an internet economy. So we want to fly you over to do some touring and release your back catalog. And so we actually flew over and ended up playing sold out shows, including at like Olympic Stadium and like sold out clubs and the fans knew all the words to the songs. And we sort of had like this strange trip of being like rock stars for two weeks in South Korea. And to this day, you can find cover bands playing medicine in South Korea. And like, you know, I've been teaching you know, occasionally how to play that solo from that song to Korean guitarists. That's like a, a Harvard case study. I feel like you like that's like one of the most r- beautiful random benefits of the internet is things like that. It's one of those like long tail success stories where you know the moral of the story is there's a South Korea out there for every great artist. You just have to find it. It's like the Thousand True Fans Kevin Kelly thing, and so it was definitely a lesson learned and fun to be at the epicenter of it. You put that on your tombstone. There's a South Korea for everyone. All right. So take me through the past. So after after your fame in South Korea, did you start out at NPR? What, what was the radio bit? You, walk me through it. So I was playing in the band, but I needed an actual day job, which is not an infrequent experience. And I got hired as a producer for an NPR call-in talk show called The Connection, produced out of WBUR in Boston, 2000-2001, which was amazing. I'd already been a fan as a listener, but I fell in love with the medium, fell in love with sort of the high-quality journalism and this like daily adrenaline of like a talk show on every conceivable topic. So we would one day be talking about like philosophy and jazz piano. And then the next day we'd be covering the hanging chads Florida recount, you know, Supreme court hearings. And that show ended up blowing up. There was a fight between the producers and the station management. It was sort of like classic sort of talent versus management question of control and IP. And this was also sort of the backdrop of the dot-com thing. And we set up an independent production company, ended up leaving to start essentially a pre-podcast digital audio company because podcasting hadn't yet been invented, but we were distributing our own direct MP3s of this talk show, you know, sticking them up on a PHP Nuke, you know, website that was like the community home for the fans of the show. And webcasting was the phrase at the time. We were like webcasting it 
out to other radio stations. And we got an invitation to set up shop at this academic think tank called the Berkman Center for Internet and Society, which is at Harvard Law School. And they invited us in to sort of incubate this thing we were building. And I ended up getting hired there as the associate director around 2001. And that place really been back then and is still today this amazing confluence of a lot of interesting thinking in the kind of academic, intellectual, and policy side of the internet. And right around that time was when Larry Lessig was there and they started Creative Commons in 2002 and this whole licensing scheme to try to make it smoother to have shareable intellectual property on the internet. And then a year later, Dave Weiner, who was the blogging pioneer, had really invented RSS, showed up as a fellow at the center. And he teamed up with my former radio boss, Chris Lydon, the guy who'd been the host of the show. And they ended up almost accidentally inventing the first podcast in the summer of 2003. Dave was an advocate for RSS and blogging, and that was just emerging as a phenomenon. Chris was recording audio interviews. In fact, he was going up to New Hampshire and trying to cover the primaries. And he was like looking at the Dean campaign and his recording interviews. And I remember this because I was sitting at the conference table when it happened. And Dave Weiner was like, why do I have to keep going to your webpage to see if there's a new audio interview? Why can't we just stick it into the RSS feed like my blogs and it shows up automatically? And there you go. That was actually the invention of podcasting. I'm not claiming any credit to have done it, but I was at the table where it was invented and it was all really sort of an interesting confluence of trends happening at that time. But it was sort of at the moment, it seemed like a trivial hack. It was like just an ad, you know an add-on audio blogging, essentially. But it quickly became apparent this was an incredible new avenue for distribution and expression and, you know, hopefully some business models eventually. Around that same time, I I left the Berkman Center to co-found this brand new startup. It was just an idea on a piece of paper, but luckily had some really great mentors and stakeholders called PRX, Public Radio Exchange. And that was the the fall of 2003, where the idea was this was a nonprofit because all the risk capital going into internet startups had dried up, especially media, journalism. And so luckily, the forward-thinking foundations and philanthropies like Ford and MacArthur and National Endowment for the Arts and Corporation for Public Broadcasting recognized that this was an important medium that somebody needed to build, experiment, do the R&D for what would happen in digital audio. So we made the case that PRX would create an online marketplace to help independent producers of stories and documentaries. This is still, again, podcasting wasn't yet a phrase anybody knew. But anybody who's creating these radio shows, we would create an open marketplace where you could directly upload them, and then we would make them directly available to local broadcast affiliates of NPR all over the country. So the idea, and this is still true today, you can go to prx.org to the exchange, and if you wanted to upload an episode of, of this podcast, you could make it available for broadcast on local NPR shows all over the country. And the stations, it's a B2B marketplace, they would go license the show, download it, put it on their you know, local broadcast automation systems and send it out to the terrestrial listening audience on radio. And Dave Weiner at the Berkman Center was like, that's pretty cool, but you should be making those all available as podcasts too. So even at the beginning, PRX was straddling these two worlds of trying to change the broadcast system through a new marketplace and then cultivating this early idea of what podcasting could be which back in 2003, 2004, there was like a rush of interest, but also really slow to pick up audience because you had to plug your iPod into your Apple laptop and connect it to your iTunes desktop application. So it was a little hard to make it all work. And so we built our first podcast desktop app called Pubcatcher in 2005. So it was like a PRX product. So it was like, that was just the first phase of this whole 
journey, but it's interesting to think back that those were some of the building blocks that got me started. Well, RIP to iTunes. I think they just recently announced that's going the way of the Dodo. It's funny because, I mean, man, it, it seems like you were a full... I mean, that's like a full decade ahead of what seemed to be mainstream adoption. So in the post-05, 06 period, was it kind of focusing on that business? And then at what point did the genesis of the rest of your ideas come to fruition? Being familiar with those phases, I mean, this was sort of dawn of Web 2.0 and like the dawn of social and it was still pre-mobile, pre-smartphone. Digital audio was still stuck in the sort of like real player and Winamp <laughs> days. I mean, you know, part of the real friction was that audio until the smartphone was a terrible fit for the internet. You know, you're trying to jam audio files into web pages and that is really just not a good distribution model. So it was always this kind of like awkward evolution, even for music, but particularly for spoken word and podcasting. The way we handled it at PRX is we began building that marketplace and climbing up the long tail. So, you know, Chris Anderson wrote that long tail book right around that time. And we were in the book. PRX is included as a reference, you know, early example of a long tail marketplace. As we built this open aggregation, we had tens of thousands of these stories available for licensing. But we recognized that we needed to start to develop talent and shows as well, both the technology and have a stake in the content side. So around 2007, that led to us helping create something called the Moth, the Moth Radio Hour. So it was like this phenomenon of a live local storytelling event in New York, and they dabbled in thinking about taking it into radio or audio, and we helped them develop it into a radio show that then became a very successful podcast. And that was really our first, PRX's first stake in more of a franchise that was a weekly national show that led us to eventually bring on This American Life for distribution and eventually start the whole Radiotopia podcast network. But in those intervening years, you know, looking back on it, in a lot of ways, we were an R&D. We didn't have a business model that was yet functioning to power the whole organization. We were growing one because it was a licensing business. But we were essentially on behalf of the industry with subsidy from philanthropic, visionary philanthropic sources, experimenting with stuff. We started building those desktop apps. And then in 2008, when the App Store and iOS launched, we built the first aggregation app for podcasts and live radio streams called the Public Radio Player. And it was literally like within the first month of the App Store launching, we turned our developers into iOS developers and began building native apps because it was immediately clear that this was the inflection point where audio could make sense in a digital world outside of the metaphor of a web page. I've been to a moth before in Los Angeles at a bar called Zanzibar, which doesn't exist anymore. It's sad. It was a great salsa club too. I can't salsa dance, but it's good music. Did you tell a story? Did you tell a moth story? Did you get up on stage? You know, I would have, I think probably, but I was a voyeur. I was an audience member. I loved it. I had a great time. You remember, you're in LA, so everyone telling a story is like a professional storyteller because they're all want to want to be actors doing monologues, essentially. But it was good. So you're still years ahead of your time. It's bringing back a lot of fond memories. I mean, because you're talking about the early days of this, and I, we we had started a blog in the early mid 2000s, and so thinking back to blogspot and blogger and our blog role and the way that you interacted with people pre-Twitter and everything else is is taking me back. Okay, so financial crisis happens. And then I feel like, was that sort of the time? I mean, I think the iPhone is probably the accelerant for the whole podcasting world. Maybe you have a different opinion. I don't know. But it seems like post-financial crisis, was, was that really when podcasts started to find their footing? And and, and was there kind of a main moment there? 
when I look back, I feel like there's three waves uh, with this third one, you know, is the one that really hit the inflection point. But that first one was, of course, the kind of founding moment, the 2003 to 2005 era of the introduction of podcasting as an open standard. And then Apple incorporating it in 2005 was really where it simultaneously like sort of got elevated into, you know, this major platform, but also kind of got calcified because they didn't build a business model on top of it or didn't really innovate. So it sort of sat there for a while, but at least got sort of fixed into the firmament of like Apple's own devices. And then you're right, the introduction of the iPhone began this second wave. And that suddenly made it clear that these phones were actually also radios and two-way radios at that. But it just changed the dynamic incredibly where all of a sudden the distribution of audio instead of being kind of stuck in desktops and web pages could be freed and opened up and transported along with you, which ironically, I mean, it's, it is like the, the transistor radio or the Walkman, like suddenly we had those back, but they were everywhere. That took a little while, of course. I mean, the phone was introduced and the app store was launched, but it took a while for consumers to kind of gravitate towards that new habit. So over the coming years, 2008, 2009, that was around when Stitcher launched so like a first standalone podcast player. We launched the public radio player. We began building standalone apps for This American Life, we built an app, and then stations like KCRW in LA and WMIC in New York, we began building apps on their behalf. We started to see a lot more growth. And I would say that it was the confluence of the propagation of smartphones and consumers getting habituated into expecting on-demand media of any kind. So whether it's you know YouTube, Netflix, or Spotify, but they just got used to the idea that there was at their fingertips on their phone, on-demand media. And then podcasts, of course, were not just high quality media, but they're free and they're still really confusing. And, you know, everybody sort of had this, like, it's still today, there are people you'll meet when you say, do you listen to podcasts? And they're like, I don't know how. <laughs> There's still this like friction just around the concept of it, but it did mean that that second wave started to lift the visibility and participation, both of audiences and podcasters. And then you really, the third wave, and I can fill in the gaps about what we were doing during all that, but 2014, you can mark it on a calendar like that is the birth of the modern podcast industry that we're now just just shy of five years into today. And the inflection point there was one, it was all of those trends that I described finally reaching kind of scale. Two, it was Apple broke out the podcast app from iTunes. They made the little purple icon suddenly on millions of phones by default. There was this new thing that you could touch and suddenly podcasts were listenable. And that same year was the year that This American Life launched Serial. It was the year that Gimlet launched Startup. It was the year that PRX launched Radiotopia. It was the year that Slate launched Panoply. 2014 was the breakthrough year. That was when Nick Qua began Hot Pod to start chronicling the industry. So you can see the trend that had been lagging finally breaking through, which was advertisers recognizing that this was a really valuable, engaged medium, that there's an audience there that was listening with extraordinary attention. And they began shuffling parts of their budgets into podcast advertising, including, of course, the direct response advertisers who found that to be a perfect fit for how they wanted to reach consumers. I'll tell you the aha moment we had. And so we're not the first adopters, but we launched, what, 2015, 2016? I can't remember at this point. 150 episodes, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, but we had resisted doing it. And in the investment world, had always really struggled with the concept that, they don't teach personal finance and investing in high school or college. So we always say there's a great business opportunity for someone to really develop some basic education courses. So I had always thought that 
the correct delivery mechanism was online videos for that. And there still is an opportunity to do that. But we had resisted doing a podcast for quite a while at that time because of thinking the video was what everyone wanted. And eventually on just like a bored whim had tweeted out to our audience and said, hey, would you rather prefer all things given equal, a really high quality production video series or a podcast, audio only? And it was like 80 or 90% said podcast. And that just floored me. I was like, that's so weird because I would have, I voted for the video, but it's obvious in retrospect, right? People are like, oh, I can listen to it on the train while I'm at the gym, while I'm walking my dog, all that sort of things. Wish we'd started a lot earlier. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, so enough about me. But it was right around that same time. So, okay, so you're cruising along at PRX. What's kind of the development there? And, and then at what point did you start to branch out some of these other ideas? In 2012, we spun out a separate company called Matter Ventures, matter.vc. And it was partly based on our experience of being an innovator in technology and media and recognizing that there needed to be some seed capital for other similar mission-driven you know, media inventions. And it, rather than, you know, when we first started to do it, we got a grant of $2.5 million from the Knight Foundation. We were going to do it within the four walls of PRX and decided that that would be a little off strategy for us to be incubating more things. I already had a little bit of trouble leading the organization, being the kind of person who gets distracted by too many new initiatives. So I've been trying to have a more discipline. And the answer there was to actually spin it out, turn it into a for-profit fund, and then found an extraordinary person to run it, a guy named Corey Ford, who had been, at the time, after having led some of the design thinking work at the D School at Stanford, he had been working for Eric Schmidt, running an early stage accelerator program for innovation endeavors for Eric but had been missing his journalism and media roots. And so I recruited him to take over as managing director of, of Matter Ventures. And we got some matching limited partner investors into a fund and launched it as an accelerator for early stage mission-driven media companies based in San Francisco. And then we eventually opened up a New York branch. PureX is one of the founders. So we owned a little piece of the fund, but we really made it a separate company because it was a different beast entirely. But it taught us a ton both about some interesting structural governance ideas about nonprofits and for-profits and hybrid enterprises, but also the accelerator model in early stage entrepreneurship and really the sort of Venn diagram of, of entrepreneurship, digital media, and design thinking, which was really Corey's strength and discipline. So Matter began its first cohort five-month program. It ended up doing seven of those over the course of two funds. It's currently deciding whether it wants to raise a third fund or 10, but it was a really great window into that entire phenomenon that really was taking shape too about vertical accelerators and the other kinds of things that we were trying to develop. Some of those ingredients, the reason I spent a minute on it is because they are some of the DNA that, that got recombined into what we're doing today with Pod Fund, which we'll definitely get back to. And PRX continued at that point to start to see a real business model forming around podcast distribution. We made a hard decision to stop building have like this apps business that was almost a white label business for building mobile audio apps for partners and stations and producers. We wound that down. We launched uh, Radiotopia as one of the first podcast labels. It's like a you know a podcast network in partnership with Roman Mars, who's the host of 99% Invisible, really successful independent podcast. And it was really one of the first to sort of strike this model where almost like, you know, for those familiar with the YouTube universe, it's like a multi-channel network, but saying we want to represent this group of really excellent producers who own their own shows, 
but PRX will provide the ad sales, distribution, marketing, technology for publishing, and as a collective could actually have some real throw weight with the platforms. And Radiotopia launched that same summer of 2014 and is today one of the strongest podcast networks. And we did a Kickstarter campaign that fall, which was really successful as well, raised like half a million dollars to get the network started. But one of the things that was a source of frustration, like we just knew this was friction and a problem, is here you are with millions of listeners and you're running a campaign on Kickstarter. And the only way to get them from here to there is to ask them to do it in audio. Be like, hey, we know you love listening to us, although we don't know who you are and we don't know how much you listen. Unfortunately, you can't click a button in the app where you're listening. You have to go over to Kickstarter and then sign up anew to support us. I had been lobbying Apple for a long time to build in some of the hooks that would allow for direct donation or payment or at least you know some sort of funnel for engagement. No signs of that happening back then, but we knew it needed to be done. So you know, it took us a while, but about a year and a half later, we decided to build a platform that could do all those things, really help with marketing, engagement, monetization for publishers and podcasting. And we decided to spin it out again. So this, instead of being inside of the nonprofit, we decided to create a separate for-profit, make it a startup, and that became Radio Public. And this time, in order to give it a shot of success and also to separate out the two different entities, I left with it. So I came and became the founding CEO of Radio Public uh, we were in a really good place with PRX because it became a strong network. And my chief operating officer, Kerry Hoffman, who'd been there from the beginning with me, was more than ready to take the reins and really run PRX as my successor as CEO. And then we set it up as a hybrid where PRX is on the cap table for Radio Public. It's a founding partner, but it's a separate entity. And we raised a seed round for Radio Public with a mix of institutional and strategic investors like Homebrew, the NSF, but also the New York Times. And Project 11, a fantastic fund here, VC fund in Boston, but also American Public Media, Bose Corporation, you know, sort of a really great mix of investors who are backing the Radio Public platform, which we really launched, I think it was the spring of 2016, uh, was when we announced it and we launched the product in the beginning of 2017. So you're a couple years in. Talk to us a little bit about what Radio Public's focus is, how you guys are different, what you're up to, all that good stuff. I mean, it's been fascinating, of course, because like this last two and a half years has had so much rapid evolution in the industry. And as a early stage startup, you're constantly iterating and solving and figuring out and doing all these pivots around product market fit. I took two of my engineers who had worked with me at PRX for a long time. We had enough head start in having built many things within the industry that we were very deliberate about the kind of things we thought were missing and what we needed to build. The first focus was more on the user experience and discovery side with a view towards saying the ultimate customer is a creator. Like we want to build a B2B to C platform where, you know, the way to gain traction and market share is not necessarily by trying to compete with Apple at its own game because they've, they're going to they're gonna beat you at that. But by solving for problems that podcast publishers have that are still remaining and they're growing because they need all of the tools to do marketing and engagement and monetization that don't exist anywhere else. Some of those things, for example, a couple of innovations. One is the whole way to issue calls to action. The New York Times, for example, we were lucky enough that they launched the daily right around the time we were launching Radio Public. And they, had, as an investor and a partner, they linked to our Android app as the exclusive first link for the daily. But the goal of the daily isn't just listening and advertising. They want to convert listeners to New York Times subscribers or at least have them take the next step to join the email newsletter. How do you turn that funnel from listening into taking action. 
we built this thing called Affinity Promotions. And what it is, it's a score, it's an algorithm, where on device, each listener per user, per feed, per device basis gets a score that is an expression of their affinity for the show. If you listen all the way through to Medfarber's show, you know, you get a high score. If you skip one, your score goes down a little bit. If you share it, your score goes up. If you listen within, you know, four hours of a new episode dropping, your score goes up even more. So that score, then we can unlock a promotion from the publisher to that individual user based on the score with a call to action. So an example would be, hey, we noticed you love listening to the show. Do you want to join the email newsletter? Click here. The click here just goes to your email, you know, your MailChimp web friendly funnel. But the conversion rates are crazy through the roof. They're 20, 30, 40% because it's only unlocking for someone who's exhibited high affinity through their listening. So that kind of connection, which I think is part of the missing value of podcasting across the board, is the kind of thing Radio Public began solving for. But definitely don't think at this stage we've like cracked it for the whole industry. It's still a small audience, all told, that's using these tools. But it really has started to demonstrate what we know to be the bigger picture. There's ultimately that podcasting needs that kind of an engaged marketplace that isn't just driven by the thin layer of CPM advertising monetization, but is the much deeper value of these highly engaged listeners who will jump through walls if you invite them the right way to support what you're doing. I know I'm probably the only person on the planet that believes this, but I love harassing all my podcast app friends about the rating situation as something as a as a podcast host, but also a consumer. I probably listen to, I don't know, 30 to 40 podcasts that I subscribe to. I don't listen to all of them, of course, but I am up to about two to three times speed on most of them. But it grew to be such a frustration on my side. My producer here, Justin, part of his detail was to listen to all the podcasts each week and rank them. And we send it out to our institutional research list, the Idea Farm, as somewhat of a benefit. Because if you think about it, if you value your time at, I don't know, $100, $500, $1,000 an hour, whatever it is, you know, listening to a few crappy podcasts can add up quickly. And, and my kind of whole point was, if you have a, something rated 95, chances are it's probably good. If it's rated 10, it's probably an Adam Sandler movie. And chances are it's probably terrible. I say I'd pre-Waterboy, they're all amazing. But anyway, the podcast industry will eventually figure out the curation and signal problem and it's something you guys have started to think about, at least I've seen. Uh, there was some partnership and ideas. I'll tell you a minute about that, because part of our tact on that front has been through really focused curation. So we, early on, created the first position in the industry of a podcast librarian. She's our content strategist and librarian, Mayan Plout. And we started doing hand curation, like really bespoke initial stuff where she and there's a classic kind of startup move, something that designed not to scale, but teaches you a lot. In the, in the first six months of the app, there was a, a button you could push on the search screen that says, if you don't know what you're looking for, fill out this form and we'll send you recommendations. And that form would go to my on and the form would say, like, here are the movies and books I like watching, I like you know, consuming, what podcasts should I listen to? And then she'd write them back one at a time. And we had, you know, a thousand of those that became, became like the corpus that we started to build more recommendations off of. What she's done since, which I think is actually at least one piece of the puzzle, is to create a framework for curated collections that she does, but mostly we do it through partnerships. And we find people who are experts in their field or have particular influence or know-how, and they then work with us to create a list of, could be 10 or 12 episodes, or it could be 20 podcasts 
around a tightly defined vertical or collection. And then that becomes simultaneously a building block for discovery inside the app and on the landing pages, but also becomes content marketing for them because they put it on their web page and they say, you know, for example, we did one with the Financial Times, FT Alpha Chat. Brendan Greeley, who used to work with me at PureX and is an amazing host in his own right of the FT Alpha podcast, Alpha Chat, which is awesome. He created a list of slightly wonky economics podcasts and he annotated it, you know, a little bit of why he thinks each one is good. And then, of course, they put their own in there to get some promotion. But that list, which, you know, exists as an OPML file that could be imported into other apps, it lives out on the web and it lives inside the native apps, you know, is a really good way to do what you're saying, which is to sort of shortcut to something great, but through like a trusted recommendation, you know, not just through either like obscure ratings or like, you know, luck of the draw in a search index. I think you're going to see a lot more of that, whether it's AI assisted or pure human creation, whatever point oh, we're at this point with the internet and everything else, 3.0, 4.0, where there's so much information and the ability to curate it to where it's useful. I mean, like the, the 1.0 in my mind was like search and discovery. And so the 1.0 in my mind of podcasts is like, hey, you like cereal? Here's three other podcasts you might like because people only listen to one podcast. And now the problem is I literally have 30 or 40 and I just want to hear the five best episodes each week or at least be able to order them. It's an interesting problem to solve. I was on an advisory board for a Boston-based startup called The Echo Nest. It was eventually acquired by Spotify and they were these two MIT Media Lab guys, another friend of mine is the CEO, and they built this amazing software engine that could make intelligent connections between songs, essentially, and the two halves of it. One was like scanning the social web for all the things that listeners were saying and fans were saying on music blogs. And the other one was actually like scanning the MP3 itself and distilling it down to like 17 attributes of tempo and danceability and tone. And together, they could just apply that to a huge music catalog and start to make recommendations that were actually innately interesting but then they when they were owned by spotify they ended up powering discover weekly because they could add in all of the collaborative filtering of listening data and the podcast version of that is not as simple as it might seem to sort of get that right for the wildly diverse interests that listeners are bringing to the table where you might be a fan of a few popular shows but then you have these niche you know you listen to like the whitewater rafting podcast and have your friends talk show about minute by minute listening to like star wars movies so it's a really interesting problem that I, I think will get solved to your point because there's so much investment in the semantic understanding of words and you know the ability to do automatic transcripts and the kind of work that I've seen at companies that we get pitched on or understand, I think will end up being a really good solution to more of that, but it's not here yet. Good. Well, I hope you guys build it. I'll, I'm cheering for you because yeah. <laughs> we love it and we'll produce it. For the listeners here who haven't used Radio Public or the podcast actual hosts, Talk to me a little bit about anything else that you think is important, that you guys think is different, and or maybe what's on the horizon as you guys continue to innovate and build build out this app. On the listener front, there's a couple of things to call out. For one, we are really privacy forward. So you do not have to do social sign-on or even create an account to listen or download or make use of Radio Public. I and mean, that's purposeful. It turns out to have been on trend from what we've seen in the internet in the last like, couple of years, but this was a commitment both as a practical strategy and as a mission from early on. That means that you are able to also immediately open the app from any link. So we have universal links. So if you share a link on Twitter or post it on Facebook or use one of our universal embed players, you can seamlessly go from an episode straight into continuing to listen to that episode without having to go through some 
sign up or onboarding process. So we see that as a real advantage for how Radio Public functions, as well as, of course, all the things I was describing in terms of recommendations and radio mode for continuous listening and stuff like that on the listener front. We do have this layer of additional promotions that podcasters are starting to really use. So you can get some bonus fan invitations, and it could be an invite to a live show or a chance to learn something more about your favorite podcast that's ancillary, additional to the listening experience. And a lot of our you know, attitude towards that is like, don't interrupt listening because people are usually not even looking at their phones. So some of those promotions are just like notifications that come later in the day. Like, hey, thanks for listening. Here's something you might want to follow up on. So that's a unique attribute on the listener side. But a lot of our work in the last 18 months has been on the creator side, on the publisher side. So when you go to podcasters.radiopublic.com, which is really the home for publishers of podcasts, there's now an entire set of tools, free tools, the embed player, something called pod sites, which I'll explain, and a program called paid listens, which if you don't yet monetize through advertising, you can opt into it and you get paid for every listen on Radio Public at a $20 CPM. So this is something where we get to put, we put like a short pre-roll on platform and then we pay a fixed fee guarantee for every listen on the platform. So there's a couple thousand podcasters who've signed up who are in the long tail to start monetizing, even if they haven't been able to sell their own ads. And we see that as a unique benefit as well. The product that we're just now starting to really promote more, and we believe in it deeply as a strategy for any podcaster, is something called PodSites, which is essentially the podcast website, but it's designed, it's optimized for podcasting, where it automatically updates every time you have a new episode. It's designed for SEO so that when listeners are landing through web search, they can really quickly convert to being a subscriber or a native listener, not just in Radio Public, but in any popular app, including Apple and Spotify. It is essentially like imagine Squarespace or WordPress, but actually designed for podcasting with all the native tools built in for analytics and conversion. So pod sites, we also sell your own domain. So we encourage you to own your domain, make sure your feeds are associated with that domain so that even if you switch podcast hosts or aggregate it into different apps, you're never going to be pulled away from your ownership of your end users and your listeners. So there's a lot of best practices that we've learned the hard way over the years that are baked into the free product on the free tier, and then there's a paid product at $15 a month to have a, a professional pod site that is sort of an instantly really great looking marketing landing page and home for your podcast. Very cool. I love a lot of those ideas. They seem fairly podcaster friendly. And reading through that A16 report, we'll add it to the show note links. There's almost a million podcast hosts now. And you hear so many people in the media being like, oh, it's peak podcast. But in my mind, it's like, when has there ever been a better time to be a consumer and producer? Like you want to talk about craft beer that are porters in the Northwest? Like that's, (laughs) you can find that audience. I love it. It's a, it's a great situation. So I'm, I'm hugely bullish Talk to us a little bit about you built this app. You can kind of, it's like a playground of analytics in my mind. You have kind of some serious insight into what's going on in the world. And you had some news recently where Tim Ferriss is moving from sponsor to donation supported project. You have a situation where in China, it's like 5x the revenue of the US, but it's mostly paid subscriptions, et cetera. Talk to us a little bit about the kind of future of how this evolves in your mind and, and feel free to use this as a jumping off point to starting to talk about um, the pod fund as well. 
all of those are healthy trends. I mean, some of them deserve sort of nuance because like that whole Chinese market is so sort of radically different than the consumer experience or sort of expectations, but is also a signal, I think, of opportunity for how it could evolve here as well. And the good news is that podcasting is, as a whole has been under monetized and sort of undervalued, given that what we've known, and I've certainly been feeling this since, since it started in 2003, is that it's this incredibly engaging, highly effective medium for really valuable listening and information and entertainment. But the monetization has lagged for a long time, in part because there's never been a significant platform monetization in the middle. You know, there's never been a YouTube of the space. Apple definitely hasn't been that yet. So all the advertising dollars kind of have to flow around that being pushed through a straw, like directly into each of the shows in a different, less efficient way. So that's also protected it from some of the ills of like, you know, overly optimized and also gameable digital advertising. But the thing that's always been clear is that podcasting should and could evolve multiple revenue channels. And that increasingly podcasters of every stripe are waking up to that and starting to uh, you know, develop a diversified business model, which of course is just a good strategy overall. And I'm highly encouraged by the trend because it already had preexisted with crowdfunding and Patreon and Kickstarter of podcasters seeking direct support, whether you call it donations, membership, or subscriptions. I think there's a lot more to come on that front. And you're going to see it happen both at the platform level. So obviously at the most significant swing t- taken at this has been Luminary, building a paywall subscription product of their own. But you also see it through like third parties where you have like supporting casts and ACAST access and startups providing sort of the infrastructure to do direct payment and billing. And then you've got apps that are going to continue to try to do that where they are the gatekeepers for those kinds of solutions. And at one end of the spectrum, there's Spotify, which itself, of course, has its own premium model that could play into a significant source of revenue for podcasting. And then Apple, which you know remains to be seen how they turn on or if they turn on monetization at some level. So what I think is a great advantage for podcasters, I'm glad to see Tim take a swing at this too, Tim Ferriss, is to say, hey, amongst the thousands of listens out there, there's a core audience who really values this. I mean, we're part of their lives and we should give them a means of supporting it directly. It doesn't mean necessarily that it's zero sum, that you have to go ad free to have direct support. And I think there's a lot of gradations in between. There's still all of these building blocks that are not in place such that the friction is still inhibitor. So if you back somebody on Patreon or patron of a podcast that you love and they give you a private feed, you know, you still have the public feed and the private feed and you have to copy the paste the private feed into your favorite app and then you can listen and all of that should be fixed. We've got a, a proposal for how to fix it with an open protocol that we're calling PodPass. If you could imagine what it's like when you turn on your Apple TV and you authenticate to Hulu, you could imagine authenticating to a premium feed or a private feed from any publisher on any app. And so PodPass is a protocol that we're beginning to advocate for right now behind the scenes and eventually publicly in the industry to solve that problem. But I think of the overall trend that you're describing, the future as I see it is in a more of a diverse economy where you certainly have some fully advertising supported, openly distributed podcasts, and you've got an archipelago of like, you know, paywalled solutions that are likely to be more vertically focused than a broad aggregator. And then I think you're going to see startups and others trying to carve out these other forms that are more like the China market, where it might be, you know, very bespoke kind of focused paid products for segments of professional learning or lifelong learning, or, you know, particular kind of experiences that don't necessarily make sense in open podcast distribution, but could be supported by the same ecosystem that's grown podcasting so far 
I really do hope that there remains like the lion's share of the pulse of the industry remains on the open protocol that is still sufficiently decentralized, that it's not a winner-take-all platform game. I think that's a not just a better thing for creators, but a sort of a better thing for the industry to be healthier that way. And I think there's a good chance that we'll make it through without having that that happen. What led to eventually the creation process of Pod Fund is seeing this rising class and influx of podcast creators of all stripes building more effective, profitable, small media companies with podcasts as the core product, not necessarily the only one, but a diversified business model where it's advertising and crowdfunding or membership and live events and merchandise and licensing to, to paywall platforms. And in some cases, increasingly, you know, IP that gets turned into film, television, books, or other media. And then you start to see patterns of that that actually could be at scale or at ground floor of an entire new media category that I think is really exciting to think of as a, as a market. It's endlessly fascinating. You know, there's so many different models and ideas. You know, Tim's is interesting because he had mentioned at some point on Twitter a while back and had kind of had teased this or asked his audience. And it was funny because I, it might have been a poll and like the vast, vast, vast majority said people said they wouldn't pay. But what was funny is if you read the comments, almost all of them were like, actually, hey, we actually like your ads because they're more, they're not just like ads for, I don't know, American Express or something, but they were ads for products that he liked. So they're almost not full endorsements, but like, hey, I use this, da da da. And so people, instead of skipping them like they would probably a normal ad, they actually like them, which is a, a different relationship that people have with ads than really almost any other platform where they're just like, oh my God, skip through this. This is, this is, these are ads. All the data has like sort of continued to show that podcast ads, particularly the host read ones, perform extremely well. They aren't skipped as much as people would think they are. They are effective when they're being measured in terms of their like recall, retention, brand lift, like follow through. And it's still a really effective medium. I could imagine getting worse. There are ways that it could get much worse, but for the moment, that actually is still quite viable. And that's what I meant when it doesn't necessarily have to be either or. We also just eliminated the possibility of American Express ever advertising on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's really interesting. And it's to the point where at one point a year or two ago, I was trying to convince a friend who had written a book. I said, why don't you just publish it as a podcast serial? And you're starting to see more kind of those, the stories coming out. We had some friends who were talking about doing educational courses as just, hey, you know, this, I'm gonna do this for free, but it'll be ad supported. And we'll probably make more money if this ends up getting 10 or 100,000 or a million views or, or whatever. Anyway, there's a, there's a lot, I'm very bullish on the space. Talk to me, what was the inspiration for this concept of the pod fund? A lot of insights that we've been gaining from building these tools for podcast creators and equipping them, particularly around marketing and monetization, started to become really obvious that there was both a deep need for these tools, but also a deep need for expertise and strategic advice and how to navigate the whole evolving industry, which has been changing every three months with new practices and new players. But also there was this entire class, this influx of you know, these creator-led media companies, these like mini podcast studios, and even single podcasters who started the franchise or started to think about a second show, and they needed the tools, they needed the expertise, but they also needed access to some startup and growth capital. And there really is no source of it. If you're not as lucky to be sort of Gimlet, where you kind of built this beautiful destiny for yourself by 
managing that first seed round and telling the story of it and you know actually raising a like a startup round of capital it's very hard to raise that kind of money as a content creator or you're facing you know the uphill battle of getting to the gatekeepers of joining a network or maybe doing a deal with a platform where they might advance something against ad sales so there's a very t- a tiny sliver of creators who sort of uh, can make their way up to there and if not, then you're facing bootstrapping, which of course is the best way to go if you can do it, but it's hard again because monetization is lagging to kind of bridge the gap between something that's starting to work, but still below the threshold where you can reliably either sell your own advertising or turn to an ad sales team. And the wider thesis, as we were talking about before, if you take a step back, is like here we are in the moment where there's literally tens of thousands of incoming new publishers of every stripe. Podcasting has become a strategy from from every media company down to every author and creator and thinker and influencer. Could we be with PodFund, a place that isn't just supporting them on the platform side, but is writing their first check and helping them, supporting them on an independent path to creating a valuable company without the trade-offs that you face in raising a sort of VC round or doing a deal with the platform? So that was the inspiration. and, And we went out to the market and we decided that rather than make it a part of Radio Public where it's somehow like a platform resource where, you know, we only fund shows that we're distributing, which we didn't want to do. Uh, we decided to make it a separate company. Again, uh, I seem to have a habit of creating <laughs> separate companies around different loosely coupled strategies. So PodFund is a separate company. We raised the seed round from a bunch of investors around the thesis of investing in this emerging content creator class in podcasting. Radio Public is, of course, one of the partners and provides some tools and resources, but we also have assembled a group of mentors from different fields of expertise, whether it's legal and IP or marketing and sales or you know ad tech or licensing IP to Hollywood and you know, all the things that creators are asking these days. We have someone to match them with on a mentorship level. And then we created these instruments, these financing instruments. And the first one that we really have taken out publicly is called PodRev. And it's part of another trend that I'm excited about, which has been true in the startup technology world a bit around revenue-based financing. And it's important for you know, creators who I think are feeling this even more so in, in this industry to own their IP, to own their business. So revenue-based financing gives them an opportunity to level up with some access to growth capital, but retain full ownership of their IP and their, their business. But essentially, it's a revenue share model over a period of time. And we took the unusual step of publishing the terms. So we have the term sheet that's out there as a Google Doc. And it's really it ended up being really important because this this particular community is on the early stage of a learning curve, most of them, there's definitely exceptions, the early stage of a learning curve about what it means to build a business and take on financing. And there's a lot of like misperception or confusion about how that all works. And so it was important to us that even just the creation of PodFund and offering of the terms itself, you know, helps create a conversation and some education around what it means to build a business and what a strategy should be in podcasting. We opened up an application process so anybody can apply for the funding. The typical check size is between twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars, and the typical deal is three to five years and a revenue share of total gross revenue between seven and fifteen percent. And when we do that, we're investing at the creator level, not the show level. So the idea is, you know, if you're starting a podcast studio and you're doing your show and then your second show and you've got your live tours and you're doing your merchandise, you know, we're investing in you growing the capacity for that business to succeed. And then it's attached, the, the, the financing is attached to that, which I think helps align us with their independent success over time. We do have the ability, we have, you know, something we call a pod safe. We have the ability to join on an equity basis. And so there is a smaller 
but important subset of podcast studios and agencies and creators who are out raising enterprise level rounds or raising a seed round and building a bigger business. And in that case, we can either join that round or help lead around or syndicate around on an equity basis when it makes sense. But I think we're part of helping uh, creators decide when it makes sense and give them the options to choose from as they're building it. This seed round of pod funds, because it's a, you know, it's a seed stage, we raised 2.3 million. You know, the goal is to rapidly demonstrate that we can both identify the market for that, come up with a unique process for diligence and streamlining and actually bringing on board these creators, build a brand around pod fund as the go-to resource for the whole field in that, and then take that out because we'll probably need a lot more capital because we think there's a way bigger demand than, than just this first foray that we're doing into it. On day one, we had over 100 applications. In week one, there was already like $6 million of funding requests. And you know we know there's a much bigger opportunity and PodFund is just really in its early days of cracking that wide open. Listeners, obviously, I love it. I'm actually an investor in the fund, so full disclosure, because I think Thank it's such a that. cool... Yeah, I think it's such a cool idea. I mean, not only is it like a quasi totally different asset class, but it reminds me a lot of this podcast, Ted, our buddy at Capital Allocators did with this baseball player who not invented a new asset class, but essentially it's a similar thing where he would invest in minor league players and do a sort of income sharing agreement essentially on their career, but give them some upfront money. It's a different model because they're kind of reducing the risk for the the baseball players, but um, participating in the upside. But y'all's is, it's similar and it's a similar idea where you have, in my opinion, superior analytics but also it's a massive tailwind of growth of this industry. Where do you guys stand with deployment for the fund? Are you 10% allocated, 50, 100%? We're probably closer to like the 10 to 20% right now. I mean, the, it launched publicly only about a month ago, and we're just making our way through a backlog of the first wave of applications. And you know, part of what, of course, we believe to be true, but has really become apparent in the actual data is that there really are some remarkable, diverse, talented, entrepreneurial, scrappy podcasters building unique businesses out there that are in the sweet spot of what we think we can support. We had already you know, made four investments prior to launch as a way to kick the tires on the model, and we you know, purposely chose a wide range. So we, at the higher end, we've, we're an investor in Pushkin Industries, which is Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg's podcast network that obviously has like some really high-visibility shows out of the gate and you know, we're a much later stage. But also an example like Erica Mandy, who's a solopreneur podcaster based in LA, who has a daily newscast that she does called The Newsworthy. It's like 10 minutes long. It's kind of a light treatment of a roundup of the news that's sort of fast, fun, and fair, as she describes it. And she's incredibly industrious and like has carved out her own niche and is selling her own ads and building a business. And so we were really happy to invest in her. And we've got dozens that are in the pipeline right now. And the goal is to just do it on a rolling basis. So we'll be making investment decisions each month. For the podcasters out there, what's the main criteria? Like uh, if they're saying, oh man, this sounds like a cool partnership. What are you guys looking for? We did a post on this this week and last week on the pod.fund website and on our Medium page, both about the specific criteria and how the application process has been going. But the sort of broad stroke notion is we're looking for, first of all, we're looking for shows that exist, that podcasters already have something in the market. So we're not taking pitches even if you're someone who's like has you know a huge standing somewhere, but if it's a brand new idea, at least at this stage of PodFund's evolution, we're not doing development deals or funding ideas. So it has to exist and it has to exhibit some traction. So that would mean 
we're going to ask you, like, give us the numbers of downloads of your last three episodes. And we're hoping to see some month over month or episode over episode growth and ideally some early evidence of, of revenue. And it doesn't have to be that you've, like, you know, cracked the advertising thing and have sold out your show. You know, it could be that you've managed to scrape together one live event or done a sponsorship, but just some evidence that you've got some ability, wherewithal, and also like line of sight to how you'll make some money because we're at a place where we can help you grow that, but we need to know what we're building from. So it can be very early. We're not looking for some magical threshold of 50,000 downloads and above. Like it can be in the low thousands. It's usually not low hundreds, but it can be low. And, you know, mileage varies. Sometimes we've seen creators with lots of downloads, but very little sort of business savvy and doesn't look like a good fit. And vice versa, we've seen some who are you know, really smart about how they want to build a brand and build a business. The podcast is just emerging, but we're ready to back them. So it's not like a single size, but that kind of growth and early revenue is important to see. But obviously, if you're like wildly successful, you're probably not going to need a check from us because you're already profitable. And if you don't exist at all, you're probably too early for us. So we're trying to mitigate the usual risk filter for at least this first stage of PodFund. That's really exciting. It's going to be fun to watch. You, you guys can almost be like the OK Cupid of the podcasting space uh, and talk about all these analytics and put out. I think it'd be a lot of fun to read. I would certainly be a consumer. The thing that we've also realized, and yet definitely there's inspiration from like the Y Combinators of the world, but part of what's super valuable in addition to the mentorship is the peer network that's already starting to take shape. Because podcasters so often are working in isolation, and because the industry is changing so fast, and because we're investing in like a diverse set of creators who are, have different strategies, one of the things that's super valuable about the PodFund portfolio is the you know, horizontal learning that's happening. So somebody's doing a deal with this platform. Somebody's figured out how to do their IP licensing. Somebody's cracked you know, social media marketing spend on conversion to downloads. And that becomes a you know, totally unique resource that we can bring to bear. It's interesting. As we start to wind down here, you, you've got your hands in a lot of stuff. As you look out the horizon, what else is, keeps you up at night or anything else on your brain you're thinking about? Any other things we didn't talk about today? My origins in, in the public radio side of things always makes me feel about like how can we create a healthy industry? And I, I think of it at the ecosystem level. And part of what I think I've been able to, with a lot of help and and creative partners is create a bunch of different pieces of that puzzle. So PRX and Radiotopia, um, Radio Public, and now PodFund and Matter Ventures, like each one of these is like helping build out a broader community around you know, creating impactful, profitable, meaningful businesses. And I think podcasting, for all the reasons that we've been talking about this whole hour, you know, actually really could lead the way, not just as a new successful industry, but something that I think is really good for consumers, good for listeners, good for brands and advertisers, but particularly good for creators and publishers. So I'm super excited about that. I'm wary or worried. You know, what keeps me up at night is is the fear that it'll come crumbling down, not because of some bubble pops, but more because once the big value is understood and the money comes in and the major platforms take over, there are ways that you could screw it up by, you know, a winner-take-all paywall model or, you know, a black box of data there are things like that that we've seen those movies before in other parallel industries. And you know, I'm hopeful that the sort of pulse and sort of heart and soul of podcasting can actually grow it, scale it, make it wildly more successful and valuable for everybody without, without screwing it up. I think we have a shot at that in this industry. And so that's certainly what I have my sights set on. And without starting a new thread, like part of what we did when we set up Radio Public as a for-profit raising you know, venture capital and institutional strategic is we made it a public benefit corporation. 
which is a flavor of a C-Corp. Instead of a Delaware C-Corp, it's a Delaware PBC, a public benefit corporation. It doesn't have any different tax status, but it is a mission-driven startup where our mission is embedded in the founding documents in the Delaware Charter. I describe that as a signal and a safeguard. You know, there's certainly a lot of skepticism out there about whether that you know matters in, in the world of capitalism. But I actually think it, in a moment where trust becomes a really critical advantage for how you work with consumers and creators, embedding that into the company at its root, I think actually is a, is a major advantage for us. And it's just the right thing to do. I love it. Two more questions. We asked this one to all the podcast guests. Granted, this is an investment-focused podcast, but hey, you've started a gazillion companies and been a VC. And I imagine investing on your own too, so you qualify. We always say over the course of your career, what has been the most memorable investment you've been involved with? Could be good, bad, terrible, silly, wonderful, awful. But the first one you can think about, what's the most memorable? Oh man, I would consider this an investment. We did at PRX something called the Talent Quest back in like 2007, 2008, where we did an open call for anybody to apply to be a host. And it was right around the heyday of American Idol. I wanted to call the contest This American Idol. <laughs> they wouldn't let me do that. But the two winners are two guys named Glenn Washington and another guy named Al Letson. And we invested in their shows. They, they, you know, they came through truly off the grid. One of them was just like searching for American Idol, and I bought the keywords for it on Google, and he found the contest and entered it. And today, Al Letson is the host of an amazingly successful show called Reveal, which is an investigative documentary radio and podcast show. And Glenn Washington is the host of a show called Snap Judgment. So a decade later, these two guys who are now like core to the new generation voices of public radio and podcasts, like were an early bet that we made that seemed like totally crazy and risky at the time and has proven to be more valuable than anything I, I could have anticipated. That's great. Jake, it's been a lot of fun. Where do people go? They want to read more of what you're up to. They want to follow on. They want to subscribe to Meb Faber show on Radio Public. Where do they go? What's the best place? For sure, go to radiopublic.com. And that's where both as a listener, you can search, find anything and download the apps and uh, get the curated collections and the rest of our recommendations. Definitely recommend that as uh, to try as your app of choice for podcast listening. And of course, if you're a podcast creator, go right there as well, because we've got all these free tools that really help you with growth and marketing and engagement and monetization. And then for funding, pod.fund is the domain. Open applications right now to get into the queue to be reviewed for potential investment by PodFund. And then you can follow me, twitter.com slash Jake Shapiro, where you know a lot of the things that we are learning and advocating um, appear there from time to time. Jake, it's been so much fun. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, that was great. So much. Appreciate it. Listeners, we'll add the show notes, links to all the stuff Jake and I talked about, PowerPoint decks, et cetera, et cetera, links to how to apply to the pod fund, all that fun stuff at metfavor.com forward slash podcast. You can always leave us reviews, subscribe to the show on Radio Public, and uh, send us feedback. Feedback at the Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>